Hi, on the 5th and 6th of June, 2024, I'll be speaking at the largest AI event in Asia, Super AI in Singapore, at the iconic Marina Bay Sands. Alongside brilliant minds like Edward Snowden, Benedict Devon, and Balaji Srinivasan, I'll be on a stage exploring the extraordinary potential of AI and the profound change it represents, not just for financial markets, but also for the world as we know it. With over 5,000 attendees and over 150 side events, Singapore will become a vibrant hub for a full week from the 3rd and 9th of June. Visit superai.com to register and join me with 20% off tickets using the code REALVISION. Use the link in the description and I'll see you there. It's going to be incredible. Consolidation or something more. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Michael Gayad, Portfolio Manager at Title Financial Group and publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Hi, Michael. It's great to see you. Happy New Year to everybody but the bulls, apparently. <laughs> exactly. That, that is what the theme has been so far in this first trading week of the year. It's another rough session for U.S. stocks. NASDAQ, uh, we're just settling, but it looks like the NASDAQ is going to be down over 1%. The big loser of the day, though, and these these losses really accelerated here in the last half hour, is the Russell down 2.5%. We saw the 10-year yields creep up above 4% briefly. It's back down there again, but the dollar moved higher. As you, as you look across the action, Michael, what do you make of the markets right now? What, what's your read on what's happening? Well, so you mentioned the most important part of the market, which is the real market, which is small caps, not the auto bid, large cap, market cap, uh, magnificent seven names. That's not the market, folks. The market is the vast majority of stocks beneath that. Um, so look, since mid-November, I've continuously been saying on social media, small caps hold the key in a dramatic way. And I keep repeating that pretty much every single day. Why am I saying that? Because the reality is you have this refinancing tsunami of debt that's coming starting this year, and a lot of small cap companies are going to have a real risk in terms of them being ongoing concerns against rates given where they are. If you think about what happened coming off of that November low, small caps were the biggest beneficiary because as rates collapsed, it gave them a lifeline, at least for a moment in time, right, in terms of the perception that small caps would be okay. The fact that you're seeing to start the year small caps break down so substantially. The fact that you're seeing at the start of the year, utilities, the most defensive sector of the stock market, outperforming so substantially, healthcare outperforming so substantially, consumer staples outperforming so substantially. All that confirms the idea that despite this move lower in rates, guess what? It's probably not enough for smaller cap companies, which by the way, people forget at the end of October of last year, broke the October low of October 22, uh, 2022. Right before this this huge run up that got everybody so pulled up. So I look at the market today. I say to myself, this is all consistent with what I've been arguing for some time. And I know this is going to sound crazy. I still believe we are in a bear market. I'm sure that does sound crazy to some people because they say, you know, look at what happened at the end of last year, the last two months. It was powerful. It broadened. You had more participation. None of is that just a rally within what you consider a bear market? So I think it's important to distinguish two things. One is how do you define what a bull market is? Right, a bull market can only be known with hindsight, 
and is only when you've taken out the prior after inflation uh, uh, real high, right? From 2021. So everyone looks at the NASDAQ, oh, made new highs, the Dow made new highs. Okay, did we forget about inflation from 2021? Did we forget that the actual high is a lot more? You're still technically in the drawdown from peak to trough after inflation basis. So you can argue that we're still in that drawdown, which means we don't know just yet if it's a bull market. But let's go back to small caps. Small caps are getting rejected from their nominal all-time high. Small caps went sideways for the bulk of last year. The simplest answer is the right one. Why? Because of the headwind around higher rates. You have what looks like a breakout, and now it's getting reversed. By the way, in 2021, small caps also went sideways for the bulk of the year, had a false breakout mm -hmm. towards in November, and then collapsed into the bear market of 2022. I look at all that, and then there's another dynamic, which you know, I think you have one of these charts on the screen. I've, I've shown this a few times. Bear markets tend to end with a bang. And bear markets tend to end with a flight to safety sequence where credit spreads widen and treasuries do well. So if you were to look at the top 20 largest drawdowns for the Russell 2000 going back to 1979, you can see that on this chart that I think is on the screen here in gray. In every single instance for a major decline for the Russell 2000, long duration treasuries, which is what's in purple, basically TLT as your proxy, right? But looking at the index data, Outperforms, except for one time, which was what we saw from the 2021 bear market to 2022, or 2023, rather, because, again, they broke the October lows of last year. Okay, so anybody looking at this chart would say, okay, that was the first time ever treasuries, in quotes, failed as a safe haven risk-off trade in a major drawdown for small caps, for equities, except that we don't know if the drawdown's over. Which goes back to we don't know if it's a bull market yet because you haven't taken out the prior inflation just in high. So that's one distinction. The other distinction with this is whether it's a bull market or bear market doesn't really matter for traders. It does matter for investors, though, because if you characterize something as a bull market, it gives people a false sense of overconfidence that they can allocate even more to equities. Mm -hmm. And they probably then do so at the wrong time. So my message is very simple. Most declines tend to occur where treasuries outperform on a relative basis. You have not seen that yet. Most declines end with credit spreads blowing out at a VIX spike. You have not seen that yet. I was very loud last year arguing for a credit event. I was obviously wrong in my timing, but we're still in the lagged window of the fastest rate hike cycle in history. And I don't know about you, Maggie, but when I look on social media and I see the overconfidence by bulls, given how well they, in quotes, performed last year, which, by the way, was purely because of a stick save from the Fed in the last two months, because most stocks were down entering November on a year-to-day basis. I look at that, I go back to what I always say, opportunity always exists when the crowd thinks it knows an unknowable future. future bear markets humble us all, just not all at once. I think you said something so important in there, and we we talk about this a lot, um, and this is education month, so it's perfect to bring this up. Um, the difference between traders and investors, knowing which one you are is really, really important. And I think when you said people are going to think I'm crazy, but I think we're still in a bear market, that that chasing of performance that happened as a result of the last two months of last year and the fact that there were plenty of traders and managers of money that were behind, that did not, that thought tech was overvalued. They didn't, they weren't invested in tech. And you know, um, they're, they're all now dealing with the consequences of that. That's really hard to kind of stay on your thesis when you're watching these markets rip and you're not participating, isn't it? Well, it depends on how you're executing, which is why I'm the first one to loudly say 
don't short. Don't go into cash because that's market timing. doesn't work. And shorting, the problem is if you're wrong, you lose money one for one. Good example is my own funds are risk on, risk off. They go risk on equities or high yield in the case of my JoJo bond ETF or treasuries. They're long only. You can be bearish and long, right? You can be bearish and long. So even this year, if you're bearish entering the year and you're long only and you're in utilities as a way of being bearish or healthcare or consumer staples, you're making money as things are breaking down. If you were bearish entering November as I was, when I thought we were at risk of an imminent credit event, and you were in long duration treasuries, people seem, seem somehow just totally are, are disregarding the fact that long duration treasuries, TLT, are outperforming the S&P 500 now for the last six months. Mm. It's already happening, this transition back into duration, back into some kind of a, a normalization of the flight to safety dynamic. So, I do think it's important for people to recognize you can be bearish and long. Shorting doesn't work. It's okay to uh, lower your beta. It's okay to play treasuries. And you can still make money even if you're wrong in the direction of the broader stock market. But it's hard for, I think, for a retail audience to really understand that because every single time you co I come across as being particularly bearish in a particular moment in time, the response is always the same. Show us your puts. Show, mm -hmm. us, your, show, show us your short positions. But I know that doesn't work because I back tested it. Show me any single rich short seller. Show me any other than you know the, the occasional moments like Michael Burry, right? When uh, you get the housing crisis right, you can get it right, but then over time that really doesn't work. It's not a repeatable approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I and I think that you know talking about people getting sucked in when you're talking about a bull market and and reallocating at the wrong time is is so dangerous. And we always want to avoid that, the people being the last ones in. Uh, so we had, we're talking about rates and the danger. We have some questions coming in. We're going to get to them because they're awesome. So I want to, I want to rope them in right away, but we had the fed minutes out today from the December meeting and uh, they showed, and I'm quoting here, uh, they talked about unusual an unusually elevated degree of uncertainty about the path of policy. Great. Um, but that sort of, you know, I think mirroring what a lot of other people think, because we had, a lot of division on our air and in our conversations on Real Vision last year, and that is absolutely carried over to this year. Um, but it's it sort of the, the minutes, the impression, at least initially, seemed to be in the markets that it was a bit more hawkish than maybe Jay Powell was and restrictive for longer is the kind of phrase people are walking away with. Do investors need to dial back their rate cut expectations? How are you thinking about the interest rate outlook as we as we start to move into this year? I think everybody should ask themselves the question, why is it the Fed wants to pivot? After talking for the last year and a half about higher for longer, right? what, what changed? I go back to the simplest answer, the right one. They're probably worried about credit events. They're probably worried about this debt tsunami that's coming. They have to lower rates in advance of all these small cap and zombie companies that have to roll over into higher rates. They have to make sure they're low enough so that these companies can be ongoing concerns. Now, it gets to be tricky though, right? Because you wanna lower rates, but you don't want animal spirits to get out of control because that might reignite inflation, right? So mm. I, I think they are in a really tough spot. I really do. Now, on the one hand, you are still in that window of the lagged effects, which can create the event or can create a bigger drawdown. It's like everyone's cheering rate cuts. It, it, for the vast majority of time when the Fed starts to cut rates, the drawdown is about to get much worse for equities. We've all seen these charts. It is mind-blowing how people are forgetting the why the Fed mm -hmm. cuts rates, right? 
So, but they don't want to do it, I think, just yet until credit spreads really, really widen aggressively. The Fed does not respond to the stock market. The Fed responds to credit spreads. The Fed will respond to default risks getting repriced. So they have this dilemma. They might see that there's a risk that spreads blow out, but spreads are very tight. So can they can they thread that needle of trying to keep spreads fairly contained just as the lagged effects of those rate hikes are kicking in? And that's why I think you have this kind of back and forth confusion. That, by the way, is probably exactly why long duration treasuries can return to their flight to safety dynamic as that hedge to credit spreads, as that hedge to volatility. Um, and if I'm right about that, then the phoenix is going to rise and all these arguments around treasuries are no longer a hedge go away just in the same way that narrative always follows price. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So G. Blackburn asking, what needs to happen for credit stress to materialize? We waited all all last year. Yeah, and that's been one of the more perplexing things because you look at Chapter 11 filings, they're going up a lot. You look at small caps again, doing what they're doing. It, It has to be the case that the reason small caps have not participated anywhere near as much as large caps and are still below their nominal peak, it has to be the case that it's because of credit stress that is anticipated to come, which is serving as a headwind for small cap companies. It has to be the reason. There's literally no, that has to be a connection. It has to be around higher rates. Okay, so sometimes uh, the only way that this gets resolved is just through time. So I was early in the argument. I don't think I'm wrong about the idea that a credit event is still out there because of the lagged effect. So maybe it's starting now for all I know. Right? I mean, the reality is junk debt didn't do that well. Treasuries did well. Okay, that's at the margin, a little bit of a, of a widening. But you're coming off of you know, major lows on that compression. So it would take some time to, to move. But um, everything is screaming the same message as far as play defense. Why would you play defense unless credit spreads are widening or going to widen soon? So I think time is really the answer. And I have to tell you, because everyone is so short-term in their thinking, and because everyone seems to only want to chase, to your point, Maggie, Mm-hmm. Um, and they're just letting the chart dictate their thinking and their views and their risk tolerance. They're letting charts determine their risk tolerance. Yeah, you know, I, 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 again, bear markets make fools of bulls and bears. It made a fool of me, and I still think we're in a bear market. And if you have a credit event, yeah, the bulls are next. So Robert asking, what are the likely credit events you foresee specifically? Is there an area that you're worried about? What does that credit event look like, even if we're we're still working on the timing, you know, because of the, yeah, you have the lag of interest rates, but you also, as we talked about many times last year, have the lag of the enormous amount of stimulus that was put into the system. Right. Um, what is it, what, what is it specifically that you're worried about or what area are you most concerned about? It's hard to know what the exact catalyst would be. I've flagged Japan as being potentially where the, the, the fire gets or the match gets lit. 
mm. right, under this reverse carry trade concept. But it could be any number of things that sparks it. I mean, that's the thing about you know black swans. They're, nobody's supposed to be able to predict what the black swan is. Some might see it as a gray swan, but for most, it's a black swan. Um, so I don't know. But but all I know is that when you typically see these types of divergences against the private uh, the private economy against the public markets of small caps against large caps of defensive sectors against offensive sectors of breadth, which by the way, everyone talks about breadth is improving, breadth is improving, breadth is improving. Okay, there are many more small cap names than large cap names. Hmm. Breadth is connected to small caps. So you can't say breadth is improving and it's positive, but who cares about small caps, which is the vast majority of the actual stock. Right, market. it was like it, it improving from seven to, right. <laughs> to so, a okay, larger so number, but 12, not. 13, 14, okay, so what? I mean, that doesn't mean anything, right? So, and by the way, let me, let me just make this very clear. I'm not a perma bear. It drives me crazy when people say, how long have you been saying that? How many years have you, have you been saying credit vent? I, I was, was very clear at the start of last year. I said, it's a melt up year because of pre-election years tend to be the strongest in the cycle, but that towards the end of the, the year, the conditions would be there for a credit event. From August to October, you had a severe breakdown. Small caps did break the lows. And then you had this enormous rally and the sentiment got stupid in terms of everyone now saying, look how wrong the bears were. The, the bear porn is, is is silly. Don't listen to these guys. It's like all these people are making the same assumption the bears were making at the end of October. It's all recency bias. And I always go back to the biggest returns don't come from the middle of the trend. The biggest returns come from the turn, which means you have to go beyond a chart and beyond a squiggly line and think about the conditions that might favor a turn. And from an intermarket perspective, today was by far one of the most classic risk-off days you could imagine. Again, with treasuries actually strengthening, they reversed their yield spike by end of day. Mm, as stocks yes, they it. did. That's that was that was interesting because we had been, see, been seeing a lot of correlation. Uh, I've got to ask this question from Randy because he was the first one to to pop it in. Um, first question: Ask him what he would say to somebody who owns Nvidia. I will. I will hold back on my wording on that. Because uh, I've been very colorful on social media. Look, I, I'm not against NVIDIA. I'm against narratives that don't make sense. First of all, NVIDIA has gone nowhere for six months. AI has only improved. The stock's largely gone nowhere for six months. So I go, I go back to, it's like the lagged effect of narratives also on price behavior. I was, obviously, I was wrong in saying NVIDIA is using the colorful word that, word that I use on social media quite a bit, which is a persona. But he, here's the thing. If AI is so powerful, Okay, if NVIDIA is a true signal of what's to come. Okay, we can agree that AI is disinflationary. Right, I think we can all agree it's supposed to be productivity enhancing. So why didn't yields drop alongside all the strength in NVIDIA on the long duration side? Okay, we can all, which by the way, now you're seeing disinflation, maybe even outright deflationary pressure, right, coming in. If uh, NVIDIA is a signal of AI taking over the world, you would think that the productivity gains of all the AI that the NVIDIA chips are bringing to the world, uh, that small caps would be bigger beneficiaries. They'd be more productive. There's a disconnect. It's not my, 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 my war is not against NVIDIA. My war is against the narrative where you can't just say it applies to NVIDIA alone mm -hmm. while everything else is saying, watch out. Yeah, I, I think it's a great point, by the way, it's the same when when we have people on who are bullish, right? Like people are not permanently anything, especially people who've been in the markets for some time. They are 
following their framework and narrative and looking at timing, and the timing may be longer or shorter than someone else, but David Rosenberg will say the same thing when I talk to him too. He gets accused of being a perma-bear all the time, yeah. and um, and he's not. Um, it, it just depends on what he's seeing in the market. So it's important to for no one to get locked into any narrative that defines you as something. I wanted to get this one in uh, from Trillion X, and that is, what if a cred event is another bank blowout and the Fed uses uh, its facility or another alphabet soup solution rather than cut rates? We talked yesterday, we had a guest on who's concerned about the banking system and doesn't think that the banking system is well and is also looking at you know, its exposure, company's exposure to it, the, the fact that it lends to a lot of small cap sort of right. small medium enterprises in the US. Um, what about that? What, what, if, what if we don't see the the solution in rates? What if we see it through another mechanism? I'd argue the effect would still be the same, right? Because if they're responding to some kind of crisis that is systemic, then long duration yields would drop independent of what the Fed does regardless, probably before the Fed mm. acts. Because right? again, I go back to the Fed doesn't set policy. The bond market sets policy. The Fed follows bonds. Treasury yields, <laughs> rates did not rise when the Fed started hiking rates in 2022. Rates started rising in July of 2020. You look at the duration side, that's when TLT topped. Mm. Right? So the, the Fed follows the bond market. So um, now having said that, I, back in March of last year, when the regional bank crisis was coming uh, out, I made it very clear that I didn't think that was a credit event because there are solutions to that. You can plug the hole. I, I, I still maintain this, this original thesis that if I'm right that you know, you're in the lagged effect window, there's still some kind of a credit event out there. By the way, uh, if you look at European credit spreads on their junk debt relative to their high quality paper, they are starting to widen. So you are starting to see everything I've been saying now start to actually play out, at least internationally. Um, but if I'm right, uh, about that, I think it has to be something outside of the U.S. banking system, which mm -hmm. is why I go back to it has to be something they can't necessarily front run, uh, because the Fed knows what's going on with the banks. It's not clear if they know what the knock-on effects of Japan hiking rates, which we can debate, uh, would actually be on a highly levered global financial system where everybody's using the yen to fund riskier investments overseas. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Hi. On the 5th and 6th of June, 2024, I'll be speaking at the largest AI event in Asia, Super AI in Singapore, at the iconic Marina Bay Sands. Alongside brilliant minds like Edward Snowden, Benedict Devon, and Balaji Srinivasan, I'll be on a stage exploring the extraordinary potential of AI and the profound change it represents, not just for financial markets, but also for the world as we know it. With over five thousand attendees and over 150 side events, Singapore will become a vibrant hub for a full week from the 3rd and 9th of June. Visit superai.com to register and join me with 20% off tickets using the code REALVISION. Use the link in the description and I'll see you there. It's going to be incredible. You're absolutely right. Uh, Fed is uh, supervising the banks here. Um, and often when we see that an event happened. And to your point, Michael, it's not the event itself, right? It's the unknown second and third effects of that and the counterparty risk that comes with that in a highly connected information, global financial system. That's the concern. We've seen that before. That is true. So, you know, that's what you have to worry about. 
Uh, can I answer John, that real quick? Because I, I yeah. think it's, it's, it's a good point, this, this counterparty risk. So there is another chart, hopefully we can pull it up, that looks at the VIX relative to credit spreads. Because event, credit event is just another way of saying VIX spike, right? So which is what you see on the screen here. So the blue is the VIX, the red is credit spreads. You can see there's a one-for-one -one relationship. It's very clear that when you have volatility spiking, credit spreads widen. Those are events, right? And again, that's what typically marks the end of bear markets. So if you look at the far right, we're at all-time lows on that, which again is why the Fed has to be careful. They might be worried about the refinancing risk, but they're worried against spreads which are still very narrow. So they need to probably see some of that really rise before they have ultimate justification to start lowering. But by then it's probably gonna be too late anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And that's and and I think things move so quickly. Like this is the other lesson from SVB, right? It's like it, 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 what the Fed was able to do in days or weeks before is just, uh, you know, instantaneous now, which is in it in and of itself another risk. So it's so interesting that you're talking about the VIX. Um, we I mentioned earlier at January's Education Month here on Real Vision. We really wanted to do that because we saw how volatile th things were last year, and it's complicated. We had many, many people tell us this is one of the toughest macro environments they've ever seen. I mean, it's never been more important for people to protect their retirement and their nest egg and their financial well-being. So we really, it's always education theme around here, but we're really kicking off the year with that. As part of that, we released three new episodes of My Life in Four Trades. This is a clip from my conversation with Diego Paria. Let's have a listen. Okay, let's start with, you know, one of the big mistakes, perhaps very early in, in my career, and it was one of my, you know, early trades from a uh, personal trading perspective. And this is back in the mid, uh, late 90s, you know, it's dot-com-ish, you know, things are very bubbleistic. Everyone's making a lot of money. And, and like everyone's like, it was crazy. Everything was just <laughs> going up. Everybody thought, it, you know, everyone was a genius. And I think at that time, you know, the idea of uh, the market collapsing was, you know, you're, you're young, you're inexperienced. And so... You understand the options and the market's paying you money for effectively taking the risk that something would collapse. And, and so the idea of selling options, uh, particularly puts, um, looked very enticing because, you know, it was all one way. You're naive. You don't know that you don't know. And you're sort of, it's almost like the worst thing that can happen is that you are successful mm -hmm. at the beginning, right? It's, it's, um, and so you might do it once and may do it twice. And I think the key message I want to, to leave with uh, uh, people is do not confuse uh, strategies that are selling options with income. Because what tends to happen is people start to build the house from the roof. They say, look, I want to make whatever, a thousand or 10,000, whatever it is a month. So what do I need to do to generate that? And so you end up potentially selling uh, optionality and risk in a, in a very uh, high notional, very leveraged way. And it could work for a while. You build confidence, you start trading bigger, and eventually, boom, things happen. Mm. And so ultimately, when you are selling options, you are, it's an insurance play. You, know, you, you, you could be collecting premium for a while, but it's, it's an expectancy game, right? So at the end of the day, uh, particularly if you're doing it with leverage and, and without delta hedging or other ways of protecting, it could be extremely dangerous. So I was very lucky and very blessed that I was hit in what was a large amount for me at the time, but um, eh, eh, not big enough that it sort of knocks you off. I love that. Do not, conf 
views, trading strategies with income. Um, it was such a great conversation. The entire interview is on our website. If you're not a member, go to realvision.com and sign up. There's so much learning in these conversations. And Michael, you and I were lucky to do, lucky enough to do one of these, or you were nice enough to do one with us last year. Um, and I, I, if I remember one of your bad, we do two bad, two good and two bad. And all of it is the sort of learnings from that. And one of your um, worst trades was uh, the VIX uh, in 2018. But there's so much learning that can happen in these times. Like if you are making mistakes, you're on the wrong side of something. The key is to be able to recover, like Diego talked about, and learn from that and kind of build that into your framework, right? Yeah, and and which means you have to stay in the game. The problem is, so going back to his point about when you have early success, you think you're a genius, right? When you think you're a genius, you get overconfident. When you're overconfident, you lever. When you lever, you're vulnerable to the risk of ruin because every crash with leverage wipes you out pretty much, right? You don't have the ability to, to even come back and learn and, and apply what you've learned in practice. So uh, I do suspect that there are a lot of people that are still going to be humbled if I'm right. Because I gotta tell you, the the overconfidence means, practically speaking, there have to be a lot of very levered traders, especially on the retail side, that are extrapolating what happened last year, think they're geniuses because they traded the Nasdaq, they traded the S&P, and they're not even considering the possibility that maybe, just maybe, they got a little lucky. And that is why we talk about probabilities and risk all the time, because even if you stick with your you know, stick to your guns and, and the danger of leverage. We talk about that a lot too. And we're going to continue to hit on those themes all month. By the way, if you haven't listened to my conversation with Michael, it's available wherever you get your podcast. Just search our names up in Real Vision. It is fantastic. Uh, so we have a question about gold, Michael. Um, because when you're talking about risk, right, that's the other thing people ask all the time. You know, it seemed like treasury broke last year. That didn't work. Possibly gold didn't either, but you know what? What is your thought about gold in the scenario that you see coming? I, I'm nothing if I'm not consistent in in my views, right? So I, I keep going back to this idea that going back to being bearish and long only, right? You only have really four ways of being bearish and long only. You go long the dollar, which means short every other currency. You go long long duration treasuries, which Unfortunately, it didn't work because, again, spreads have not widened, which is what they are a true hedge to. That will happen at some point. Uh, utilities as a defensive, long-only bearish trade within the stock market. And then you have gold. Okay. Now, gold gets to be intriguing because let's say I am right. The crazy idea that we're still in a bear market, let's say I am right about that. Okay. If others then start to realize that, institutional players, they're going to say, well, you know, if after all this, the bear market's not over, then maybe I need to have less correlation because maybe we're actually in a lost decade. Which, by the way, I don't know why that's controversial. You look at a long-term chart on the Dow Jones Industrial Average. There are plenty of lost decades that have rallies that were as aggressive as what we saw last year that, again, did not take out the prior inflation-adjusted high. And still, in the context of everything, was still a bear market, right? But with some big rips, right? So... If that's the case, if that thesis is right, which again, I know is not a popular opinion and sounds crazy, then at the margin, gold would benefit because you're going to have some players say, you know what, I want that non-correlation risk-off type of behavior being long only gold because maybe they're not so optimistic about the dollar. Maybe they're not so optimistic about long-duration treasuries. I am and I'm biased on the treasury side because that's what my funds are designed to play risk-off into. 
right? But I do think there, there is a real argument for gold to really work here, independent of one's view on commodities. Gold does act as a, in quotes, risk-off safe haven allocation. And that would only be apparent as to wanting to have gold if you were to have beta break. Mm. Uh, should I assume that you do not count Bitcoin in the non-correlated asset group that you would be looking at? It was into the end of October of last year. So gold, and I, I had said that many times on, on Twitter slash X, I said, Bitcoin will diverge. This is before the ETF talk, right? Mm. So gold was running, and which is another reason why I thought it was going to be high risk entering November, it, going back to counterparty risk. The real arguments for gold and Bitcoin are, are their hedges against counterparty risk, mm. right? One analog, one digital. So the thing is, I, this most recent movement, I don't think is is indicative of Bitcoin acting like a risk off behaviorally from a sequencing of return perspective type of option, because there's so much speculation due to the ETF excitement that uh, maybe afterwards it acts more like a risk off in quote safe haven trade. I don't think you're there uh, until this ETF uh, right. dynamic. You're not seeing down. the true. Yeah. You're not, you're seeing, not seeing the, the real sentiment. counterparty. Hedge, right? You're seeing yeah. speculation, not hedging. Yeah. So interesting. We're, we're out of time, but I, I just want to leave, leave the conversation with a thought, which I know you're always looking at is you've got your thesis and your scenario, what are you looking at that would change it? You know, what's the, what's the signal that you're going to say, you know what, this is not playing out. I, I gotta, I gotta rethink this. this is not maybe going to play out the way I thought. So it goes back to time. And I always go back to path matters more than prediction, right? So let's say you end up having another very strong bull run. Okay. I can still be bearish and make money. Mm -hmm. Just again, I go back to utilities, healthcare, consumer stable. I think what would change it is if which again you will only know with hindsight is if you take out the prior inflation adjusted high, which for the Nasdaq I think is around fifteen percent from here. For the Russell two thousand, you need like another thirty percent to get back wow. to twenty twenty one. It's, it's mind blowing how people don't realize this on an after inflation adjusted basis. So my point is, you only know with hindsight. My thesis relies on the idea that we're still in the drawdown, especially for small caps. Obviously, that you're still below the after inflation adjusted high, and that you still have these lagged effects, right? And because narrative follows price. Nobody's going to say the lagged effects are starting to hit until it's too late and they've already hit. So all I'm trying to emphasize in my work, in my analysis, which is not very popular right now because of what happened the last two months, is just be mindful of the conditions and be mindful that you don't want to short if I'm right, but you do want to be careful if I'm right. Fantastic. Michael, so great to catch up with you and get your thoughts and look ahead to 24. Fantastic stuff. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And thanks to all of you for the great questions and conversation. Uh, we will be back same time tomorrow. Uh, we look forward to seeing you there. In the meantime, take care and good luck out there. We hope you enjoyed this episode. At Real Vision, we arm you with the expert knowledge, time-efficient tools, and a powerful network to help you succeed on your financial journey. Get a taste of financial freedom with our free offer at realvision.com forward slash free.